Welcome back, everybody. It's Bill Faulkner, host of the Mastering Rod Building Podcast. And I know I always say I'm excited for every episode that we do, but this one is special. It's not very often that you get to interview a living legend, someone who is an idol of yours, someone who is a mentor. And also, if I probably stretch a little bit, certainly someone I consider a friend that I've probably known for about 25 years. And that is none other than the one, the only, the blessing to performance fishermen everywhere, Gary Loomis. If you don't know who Gary Loomis is, please turn off the podcast and go away because you're not our target audience. You have know nothing about fishing and you've been living underwater or in a sensory deprivation chamber since at least 1982. But for those of you who know, I'll I'll flesh out a few more details. Oh, gosh. And we'll get into this because there's quite a history. But the founder of G. Loomis Rod, well, Loomis Composites originally, which became uh, Loomis Composite Industries, the founder of G. Loomis Rods in circa 1982 or so. and, And that's really where he became the global godfather of carbon fiber rod blanks and absolutely revolutionized rod blanks as we know it, carbon fiber blanks as we know it, made significant and really important strides in innovation and breakthroughs and understanding of how to use these materials and, and how all the components of the production of a rod blank came together, mandrels, resins, fibers, scrim, I mean, everything uh, was really revolutionized in one place with one team with Gary at the head of it from the 80s. He eventually sold the company, I guess, to Shimano in 2007. Gary, is that right? Yeah, started out 72. Okay. And he's still active designing and manufacturing rod blanks with North Fork Composites and Edge Rods in Woodland, Washington. Uh, A man who needs absolutely no introduction, but please welcome the one and only Gary Loomis. And I have to tell a couple of Loomis stories that are my very favorite, Gary, before I get out of the way and and hand you the mic. One is when the Custom Rod Builders Guild was founded in Nashville circa, I don't know, 1997, 1998, Tom Kirkman, who's the editor of Rodmaker Magazine uh, and ran TKR Rods um, and has written a few books about rod building. We've been lucky to have him on the podcast, but he uh, was hosting these shows in Nashville And I lived in Nashville at the time, and I was so excited about rod building the shows. And I would always say, hey, can I do anything to help? Can I do anything to help? Can I do anything to help? And he always said, no, just show up and enjoy the show. And then one time he said, I have a favor. I got something I need you to do. Gary Loomis is flying in, and I need you to go pick him up at the airport. I need you to drive him around if he needs a ride anywhere. And I need you to take us to dinner, you know, the the first night. And I was like, are you kidding me? Throw me in the briar patch. And and that's what happened. And I was so nervous. I mean, I like dressed up and got a haircut. And I mean, I was so (laughs) nervous to pick up Gary from the airport. And this is back when you could way pre 9-11 and you could walk through the gate even as someone who wasn't a passenger and pick, pick someone up coming off the airplane. Gary walks off and just gives me a hug and slaps me on the back and we started talking and I don't think either one of us hardly took a breath for the next three days and I learned more. It was such a blessing, Gary, to get to sort of sit at your knee and learn and it was just the exact right time in my rod building journey for me to learn a lot of the stuff that you taught me and you're always so generous with the information and i uh, i appreciate that i also another story is I, I have loomis to blame for starting me in rod building because i was an avid fly tire and fly fisherman and someone said hey you ought to build a rod and i was like you know i should build a rod and i ordered an eight foot two piece four weight imx kit from cabela's everything with flex code equipment it's like this whole thing in a kit they were ahead of their time selling kits i still have that rod today and it obviously hooked me on rod building this is a story i shouldn't probably tell but the other one was when i got my very first bonus in my first real job i went i mean i didn't even make five o'clock i went straight to the bank and cashed that check and i went straight to a place called game fair limited in nashville and the loomis glx rods were brand new and then now this is going to make you laugh. This is probably, I can't remember exactly. I have to go back and look when GLX came out, but that was uh, the rods at the time, I think for a nine foot four piece five weight was like $595, you know? And people were like, are you kidding me? You're going to spend that on a fly rod. And I did. And I fished it for a while and I loved it, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to rewrap this thing. So I stripped it down and rewrapped it. 
and I was applying heat to the tip top of that blank. The second snake got in from the tip top, and as, as I'm doing it, it goes, and I overheated it and ruined it. And I mean, it's funny now. It was not funny at the time. But uh, anyway, so I my, my whole trajectory in rod building has been deeply influenced by you and everything that you've done. So thank you so much uh, for everything you've done, and thanks for being here. How are things in Woodland? Wonderful. Not too hot and it's not raining. Oh, well, there we go. That You're beating most of the country then. Uh, you've been fishing any? I haven't been fishing uh, a lot lately, but it's just because I got a bad pain in my neck and I'm trying to get that pain out. Oh, man. That'll make everything not fun, fishing included. Well, so one of the things I ask everybody who comes on the podcast, Gary, is how did you get into fishing? And so uh, I'd love to hear your story. You know, how did I get into fishing? Just been doing it as long as you can remember. I just don't remember not getting into fishing. I was I lived about a half of a block from a little creek called China Creek in Centralia, Washington. Okay. And about a mile from Plumber's Lake, which was a uh, rock pit, but had fish in it. And geez, my mother, my mother kept telling me that when I'd go to China Creek, I'd come back with my diaper still on and she'd beat my butt because I was <laughs> I mean, if there was anything in the creek, uh, pollywogs, frogs, anything else, I'd bring them home. And my mother worked at a Chinese restaurant. We had a 55-gallon barrel at the where the eaves come down off the house full of water. Yeah. And I had it full of everything in that creek. And <laughs> and then I would walk to Plumber's Lake and fish when I was I don't know. I, I, you know, it's just unbelievable. All I wanted to do was fish. And so uh, I started fishing, you know, at five or six, I would, I would be able to walk that mile to Plumber's Lake without getting in trouble and had to be home at a certain time. And then when I got my bicycle, oh. Oh, there wasn't, there wasn't a fish safe within 15 miles of the house. <laughs> I believe it. No, I mean, it, it was just unbelievable. But at that time, I is when I started to learn the better equipment, the more fish I could catch. Absolutely. It wasn't to build better equipment at that time, just to be building better equipment. It was to catch more fish. Yeah. <laughs> I, for one, am really glad you didn't decide to build bikes. I'm glad it was fishing rods. Sounds like yeah. I, you could have had a near miss there. I don't know. Yeah. So you have a great story about how you personally, like sometimes, you know, obviously you're a titan, a legend in the industry and people just, you know, for all of the rest of us, you've been building rods as long as we've been fishing, but you've got a great story about how you started building rods, you know, for a custom application, like you couldn't get what you wanted. Do you mind telling us that story? No, I, 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 I love it. But before I went in the Navy, my brother was a steel winter steelhead fisherman. And if you wanted to fish with my brother and his bunch, you had to have a Fenwick rod. Okay. I mean, that's all there was to it. Fenwick was God, and they that's what you had to have. Or you couldn't stand up next to the fort, the fire and keep your hands warm. You had to stand in the back, second three, three <laughs> temperature. So anyway, that's the rod I had. And I, I don't know, I probably caught 15 winter steelhead before I went in the Navy. So I get out of the Navy. And very shortly, I, well, I knew my wife, my girlfriend before I married her right when I got out. So we got married on April 14th. Okay. May, you know, April, May 28th, a guy told me there was fresh steelhead in the Klamath River. I said, no, no, there's no, no fresh steelhead. Those are winter fish that have spawned and they brighten back up coming down river. He said, no, he said, I think they're fresh. They're jumping and they're, well, I was a good enough fisherman. I said, I better test this out. <laughs> so I go down there with my Fenwick rod and the first day I catch five summer run steelhead. Wow. First ones that ever returned in the Klamath River. Oh, and awesome. if you want to get hooked, catch five summer run steelhead in one day. You just, you know, I'm, I'm hooked. Oh, I can only imagine. That was the 28th of May. I fished the rest of May, all of June, all of July, all of August, till the 7th of September, and I only missed three days of fishing. That's hardcore, man. That's hardcore. I would leave work at 4.30. I'd get on the river at 11 minutes to 5. <laughs> and I would fish until dark. That's awesome. And just day in and day out. So 
in the in the beginning, you know, the Columbia River, which the Klamath flows into, is the highest around June sixth. So we're getting a lot of snow melting out of the mountains. Right. And so the river's kind of a little murky and this type of stuff. So I get by with 15 pound test uh, line and 10 pound test leader. And right. I, I, you know, I'm catching two or three fish every day and, and that's good. Well, pretty soon that old river starts cleaning up and clearing up. And I noticed more fish coming. Well, let me tell you about the run first. When they put in the dam that flooded the Salilo Falls, the apron of the water coming out of the dam created a nitrogen and this nitrogen was killing a lot of these steelhead that were going up river. So they got worried about that. So they took a lot of those eggs and they planted them below the, the, the dams so that if they lost them all, they'd have the stock to be able to reproduce up above. Right. So they put them, they put them in two rivers, never told anybody about it. They put them in the Klamath and the Washougal. Well, this was the first run back. Nobody knew they was coming and everything else. And I lit right in the middle of them. Oh, man. So better to be lucky than good, right? <laughs> oh, I tell you. So so anyway, as the water clears up, I can see more fish because this is the beginning of the fish coming in. Right. I can see more fish, but I, I'm just I'm just not getting the bites. Yeah. So I in my trout days, I knew that I had to drop down and pound test the line. Well, I went, you know, from that to 10 to 8 and I'd get down to six. Yeah. They 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 didn't respect ten very well, but they didn't respect six. And I'd have them jump up in the air and flack so hard in the air that they'd snap me off. Yeah. And and so I was losing fish. You were getting bit. You just couldn't land them. Yeah. Yeah. That very fast short rod had no forgiveness in it. Right. Well, I, I realized at that time I could take 10 pound test, wrap it around both my hands, hold them out in front, and I couldn't break 10. Yeah. But I could put them together and snap it and break 10 really easy. So it wasn't the pull that was breaking these fish off, it was the shock. Yeah. So what I needed was a bigger shock absorber. Right. So that's when I went down to our hardware store in, in Longview. And I bought a nine foot, six weight fly rod. In those days, it was all fiberglass. Yep. So I went home and being a machinist, I drill out the fly reel seat in the back. I stick a piece of blank up in there. I put cork on it. Yeah. I turn around and take off the bottom three guides, put spinning guides on them, take my file and file my Mitchell real uh foots down because they wouldn't go into a so it'll real fit thing. right yeah so i filed them down put it together and i i have a weapon now <laughs> so i'm going down there and i am just i mean i'm catching six eight ten fish every night yeah so that goes on for a while but that water gets clearer and clearer and i'm going now from six pound test down to four. Pretty big fish on four pound test. <laughs> four pound test, you know. So anyway, I have fished it every night. Now I'm fishing from the Modro Bridge to Tidewater, which see, I wanted to catch them before they got up river and everybody else caught them. <laughs> so I was catching them before they got up there. Yeah. Smart. I'd, I'd fish that every night. So after about a month of this or a month and a half of it, I know where every fish lives. Yep. And in steelhead, that you catch a fish someplace, and a, the next hour, two hours, next day, another fish will be exactly right there. Yep. So I fished all of the good water that looks good, but doesn't hold the fish, so I know the fish. So one day I'm going down, I get to this one hole. There's always two fish in this hole. It's, it's like going to the grocery store. <laughs> so there was four guys fishing and one guy standing on the bank, and geez, I hate to just go buy it. So I started talking to the guy on the bank and pretty soon somebody broke off and I says, is it okay if I take a couple casts? He says, yeah, go ahead. So first cast, I hooked the fish. Yeah. Bite the fish. Well, I had also learned by the time I hook the fish and get the fish into shallow water, it takes me the same amount of time to get it from shallow water onto the bank. So we never use nets. So anyway, I found that I could take this fish 
and pull it across my boot at a certain point and then just kick my foot and throw that fish 10, 15 feet up on the bank, ah. snap him off in midair, because I wasn't going to use that four-pound test line, leader again. Right. He might have bit it. And I'd tie another one on and go out and make another cap. So I flipped the one up on the bank, tie up, go out. Two casts later, I hooked the next one. I do the same <laughs> thing. I start, picked up the fish and start down the river. He said, okay, what are you doing? I says, well, I'm going home. Now, in, that's not what he meant. In those days, that wasn't exactly what I was going to do. I was going to throw him in the brush. Woodland Woodland was founded by fin, Finnish people, and they liked their fish. Oh, yeah. So, anyway, I, I, I said, well, I was going home. He said, that's not what I'm asking you. We come down here a half hour early before you get here every day or every other day. We thrash this hole to pieces. Once a week, we might catch a fish or hook a fish. You come down every night, make two, three casts, catch your fish, and down the river you go every day. So what are you doing different? I said, well, look at your rods. They're too short. They're too stiff. You got too heavy of a line, too much lead. Your hooks are too big. Your bait is too big. Other than that, you're doing fine. (laughs) I can only imagine how much they appreciated that helpful answer. Yeah. Well, I was wanted to be nice to him because they let me get my get, catch. My oh yeah, fish. yeah, yeah. So he says, uh, "Where'd you get that rod?" I said, "Well, I made it." He says, "Make me one." I said, "I don't make rods. I just fish." No, no. He says, "Make me one." I says, "I don't make any rods." He says, "Let me buy it." I says, "Holy!" I says, "I don't sell my wife. I don't sell my kids. I don't sell my dog, and I'm sure in the heck not going to sell you my steelhead rod." <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you, you've changed your tune on the last one. Uh, those first three may still be true, but you'll sell people rods now. That's We got you red-handed there. <laughs> he says, how much you got in it? I said, well, I got about $35 in it. I think that's what they were at that time yeah. at this place. Right. And uh, I said, I got about six hours in it. He says, I'll give you 100 bucks for it. And I says, and I, says I, I told you I don't sell my wife, my kids, and my dog. I'm not selling you my rod. He said, and, and, but, but, but think about this. I was a journeyman machinist right. running a machine shop, right. and I took home $92 a week. And he just offers me 100 bucks. Yeah. He says, I'll give you 150 for it. Wow. He says, no, I don't, I'm not selling you my rod. He says, I'll give you $200 for it. I said, let me take my reel off. <laughs> he gave me two $100 bills. This would be about 1965. I didn't even know they made $100 bills. Right. I took the, I took the $200 bill, staggered up to the car, went down. Now, that's not one day I missed because I caught my fish that day. So I took the $200, went to the store, bought me another fly rod, went home, fixed it up, five-minute glue, and I was fishing the next day. Unreal. So the next day, I pull in where I park. And there's a car park right where I usually always park. So I just pulled in next to him. Guy's leaning against his car. I get out and he says, you the guy selling rods? I said, no, not me. He says, no, I heard the guy that's selling rods parks right here where you're parking. I said, it's not me. He says, do you know Al Hellenberg? Yes. Yes, I know Al Hellenberg. He says, you're selling rods, 200 bucks a piece. I said, let me take my reel off. So I did miss that day. Yeah, hey, well, look, for all you kids out there, uh, according to the interwebs, $200 in 1965 is worth about $1,941 today, right? So uh, I, I probably I probably would have been so excited I'd have thrown the reel in. You had more presence of mind than most of us would have. Well, it was, it was, it was like that. I, I agree. Yeah. I could not believe it. But man, there they was dishing it out. So I went, I went down and bought two rods and went home and I taught my wife how to, to make them up. Yeah. She, I was a journeyman machinist. She was making twice as much money during the summer months as I was making being a machinist. Yeah. Selling those rods. One time I come home, I said, where's my rod? Well, Al was here. I said, so? Well, he wanted three rods instead of two. So I sold him here. I said, honey, that was 
that was the second day I missed fishing that week. That yeah, week, yeah. Time, but anyway, that and and the rest, as they say, is history. The thing was, is I I think that there was no rods like that right. at that time right. for that new run of fish in the summer. Yeah. Where you had to use light lines. Skinny to get line. Yep. Yep. For sure. There just wasn't any. So what I really learned at that time is you really have to match your rod to what you're going after. Right. And and that's what I, I did from that time on is uh, match the, the action of the rod to do what they wanted the lure or the bait or the spoon to do. And has a lot to do with the action and the length and and how you tie it up and everything else. Well, and being such an avid angler, it's not just like being an engineer approaching this, but you had fished first, right? And so you understood the value of the right tool for that. I remember you describing it to me as it needs to do what it's supposed to do really well and be enjoyable to fish with and come back to the dock in the same number of pieces it left in, right? Yeah, it's got to cast a liner lure correctly, right. hook a fish correctly, bite a fish correctly, land a fish correctly, and come home in the same amount of pieces. Come home in the same number of pieces, yeah. So, you know, I think, again, just like inflation adjusting the $200 from 65 until now, you know, I can go on Amazon and buy uh, some carbon fiber material or sock or tube now, right? But this is not the way that it was back then. Obviously, uh, you've made so many contributions to rod building and fishing. and But, you know, obviously, you're, you're the rod father of carbon fiber uh, and bringing that to an OEM environment and, and really leveling up the innovation and the technology in that. But I don't think a lot of people listening probably understand what that venture was like when you undertook it because there wasn't carbon fiber you could get just everywhere, right? And so there's a great story about how you how you went about. So how did you even decide that it needed to be carbon fiber instead of fiberglass or other materials of the day? I went to the ICAST. Well, it was it was the I Aftima or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I went to that probably about 74 or 75. Okay. Could have been 73 even. And Fenwick was there and they had three rods. You know how all the rods stand straight up and down. Right. They had three rods laying horizontal and up over the top of it said graphite rods of the future. Mm. So I went over and I picked them up and I got to tell you, I almost wet my pants. (laughs) Weight is a deterrent to performance. Yep. That's all there is to it. These rods weighed nothing. Right. I mean, I I just couldn't believe it. So I go over to the people that own, I'm working for Lima Glass at that time. I go over to the people that own Lima Glass. I says, we got to get into graphite. He said, well, what's graphite? I says, I don't know. But we got to get it. But I know if we're not in it in two years, we'll be out of business. So we got done with the show and we had a meeting and they said, this is the, that was the first year I worked for him. Said, this is the first year we've made any money at Lima Glass. We don't want to waste it on some unknown material. Right. Well, I just plain didn't hear it. <laughs> so I went to the Seattle library. I said, I want to know everything about graphite. So after we got out of pencil lead and graphite and a battery and graphite, you squirt in the lock in your door and this type of stuff, finally got down to carbon fiber. There was one paragraph in a National Geographic that said Cortal Company invented a new high modulus, high strain material called graphite in parentheses carbon fiber. Hmm. That was it. So we have no internet. We have we if the library doesn't have it, where in the heck do you find it? Right. Well, our blank plant was in Kent, Washington. It's very close to Seattle. Mm-hmm. And Boeing's is very close there. Yep. If anybody knows anything about graphite, it's got to be Boeing. Yeah, this airplane and aerospace company. Maybe they know something. That's right. So I go, I go there, and I get to the employee gate. Okay. And as people drive out or walk out, I said, "You know anything about graphite?" They go, "No, you know anything about graphite?" And so I'm there. I can't remember for sure. It's the second or the third day. And a guy came out and said, "What did you hear yesterday?" And I said, "Yeah, and I'm going to be here tomorrow." Somebody in this place knows about graphite. He said, well, go over to gate C. That's where the engineers come out. Okay. I go over to gate C. The fourth guy through the gate is Harry Matheson, one of five composite engineers in the whole world. Wow. I take him to dinner. I pick him up for breakfast. I take him to lunch. I take him to dinner. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm like I'm like a sponge, you know. Oh yeah. I finally get it down, and what really happens is, is Boeing's was going to build an SST with like the Concorde, mm-hmm. and he said that this is why they have the engineers. This is what they were, you know we're doing with graphite and this type of stuff. But he says if they decide to do the SST, I won't have time to help you. Right. But if they don't. I will. And so he kind of started to help me. So he was a composite engineer. We needed a computer designer engineer and we needed a computer designer engineer. Mm-hmm. We needed them. So we got the three engineers together and we had a big talk. So we we kind of got started. And so this is kind of where we got. And it got to the point of time that uh, Boeing's didn't build the SST. Yeah. Lucky for us. (laughs) Yeah. Lucky for us. You know, (laughs) so, I mean, I'd work eight hours a day at the plant building fiberglass blanks. And then I'd get there about 515 and I'd work until 10, 11 o'clock at night on the design work because none of them fished. Yeah. So they had no idea what they were building. Right. So we started out with a small scale deflection computer program system that they designed the wings of the 747 on. Hmm. And that was only designed to seven degrees because after seven degrees, the wing break off. Right. We rewrote that from seven degrees to 360 degrees so that we could bend the rod all the way in. Now, we got the program. We can build one out of fiberglass. We can build one out of steel. We can build one out of aluminum. We can build it, but we can't build one out of graphite because they don't know the properties of graphite in a tubular structure. So, so now what we got to do is we got to build some graphite tubes of different diameters, wall thickness, and this type of stuff. What they actually do is put them up vertically and push down on them until they start to bend out and then measuring the diameter of the ovaling and a, a whole bunch of stuff. Sure. So the first hundred straight tubes that I built, when I tried to pull them off the mandrel, all I did is fray them up. Oh, gosh. You couldn't pull it. The coefficient of graphite was zero. Yeah. And so trying to pull them off, couldn't pull Well, I finally figured out how to pull them off. Yeah. And at that time we didn't we have we have different releases, different tapes, different everything today. Sure, sure. But at that time we had Kedlar was the only tape to be able to tape them and get it to come off, other than that it just blended into that epoxy. So Yeah. So anyway, finally made him, finally did it, we finally made it. So now we're seven months later, just getting ready to go to the AFMA show, and I look up. Holy Toledo. Fenwick is having 90% breakage. So we kind of start to take a look. Why are they having so much breakage? Well, they didn't have the engineering that, that I was able to get together. And so they designed graphite after fiberglass. Well, the problem is there's two things mainly in, in material, modulus and strain rate. Modulus is stiffness to weight. Strain rate is how far it'll bend before it breaks. The uh, fiberglass at that time was a 6 million modulus. Graphite was 36 million modulus. So right off the bat, you would say, I only need one-sixth the material to have the same stiffness. Right. That's what I felt the year before at the AFMA show. Yeah. They cut the volume down by six times. You don't think I did? I I wasn't excited. Yeah. You know, Flex, you didn't want to break somebody else's rod. Right. So I never flexed them at all. I just shook them a little bit and laid them back down. Right. But Houston, we have a hoop strength problem. Oh, they have. It was it was unbelievable. They had a, they, like I said, they had 90% breakage. Yeah. So now Fenwick is still Uno number one in the whole world in fishing rods. Right. Doesn't matter if it's fly, spinning, steelhead, salt water, they're number one. So now I've got to go to the AFMA show and tell them that my graphite rods are better than Fenwick's when Fenwick is having 100% or 90% breakage. Yeah. It doesn't happen. Yeah. What I had to do is to sell graphite. I built a little box about eight inches square out of one-eighth mahogany plywood. I put a five-pound hunk of lead in it with an eye in it with a little cable coming up through the thing. Our nine-foot, eight-weight fly rod if you held it vertically and you put a bucket on it, you kept putting the weight on it, it would finally break at 11 and a quarter pounds every time about halfway down in the butt. Okay. Tip it, bend over, tip it, bend over, the other bend over, and all of a sudden it'd get down below and it'd, it'd break. 
So I took it and the five pounds, I, I drilled some holes in it, so it's just a little under five pounds. Mm -hmm. And the box weighed a pound and a quarter. So I took it to the show and we was on a corner booth and I had a table there and I had a great big bowl, plastic clear bowl. And I had a whole bunch of deals. And I says, if you'll take this rod, it's designed by a, a computer program system from Boeing that graphite is a very good material if it's designed and built correctly. Right. And if you lift this weight in this, it's in that box, whoever gets closest to that weight, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the rod and the reel. <clears throat> so at the end of the show, I had 837 people that had tried to lift the weight. So I'd say 5% of the men could actually lift the weight. Yeah. They, they really couldn't with two hands. I mean, with that long a lever. Yeah. Right. I, I just not couldn't do it. And most of them would go over and kick the box, see if it was welded to the floor. And uh, so anyway, the last day, this big tall guy came in. I gave him the 100% material and graphite and all his design criteria and everything else. He just flexed the blank a little and he handed it, the rod and handed it to me and said, uh, nice rod, Sonny. Well, you know how long it was ago. I'm 82 now. Yeah. He says, nice rod, Sonny. And I said, no, no, you got to lift the weight in the box. Oh, he said, I don't want to break your rod. I said, well, that rod will take eight pounds in the vertical condition. He says, Sonny, do you know which way is vertical? Yes, it's straight up and down. He says, that rod won't weight, it won't lift three pounds vertical. Have at it, sir. I said, well, I'll bet you a hundred bucks. He says, I'll bet you $600. So he starts to lift it. Well, usually I've got mm, 10, 15 people around. I look up, I got... 200 people around me. They're leaving the other booths and coming over. I look up and it's it's uh, Ed Williams, the baseball player. That's the guy, that's the Sonny who was betting you the 600 bucks? Yeah, that's the guy I'm mousing off to. <laughs> <laughs> He's my hero. And and I just noticed, well, you starting to lift it and, you know, you, you get a little smart, you know. I said, well, Ted, if you can't lift it, I'll lift it for you. <laughs> that was not the right thing to say. He turned around, reached over with his other hand. He lifted the weight in the box, and he lifted the box a foot and a half off the ground. Nobody yeah. could lift the box. Yeah. When it comes, if they lifted the weight, when it hit the top of the box, it was like the box was glued to the floor. Right. Because that other pound and a half was just, you know. Yeah. And he said, this is a hell of a rod. And he had set it down. He had lifted up. This is, he did it three times. And Lima Glass graphite breakage just went away. I mean, we we got orders from people. We got articles in wow. all of the magazines. That's crazy, man. I'd never heard that story. I can't, he, yeah, that, well, he, he's supposed to be a, a fine flycaster and also uh, supposed to be he a really good. 11, he bought 11 rods from us that year. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Oh man. I'd never heard that story. That's incredible. Yeah, well, hey, again, like you can't possibly make that up. You couldn't have probably had anybody who would have drawn a bigger crowd to your booth and, and got it done for you in one fell swoop. Yeah, no, it was. It's always better to be lucky than good. Hey, we'll take it. Amen. Uh, amen. I'm 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 often neither. So, uh, you know, we better take it when we can get it. There have been so many. So many innovations since then, right? You know, and if I just, I'm just going to run through a couple at a high level, right? So many interesting confluences and things that if it had been anybody else besides you, probably wouldn't have happened. When you, when you first started G. Loomis in 1982 and you were making, you know, 96% graphite rods and everything, you know, you developed because of your machining background, the ability to, to build rolling tables that could put way more PSI on the blanks than most of your competitors, right? That was a huge thing. You come out with IM6, which is really uh, maybe the first graphite material at that time, where you both increase the modulus and the tensile strength in one material, not having to give and take with one or the other. You come out in 1987 with IMX, which is really the first truly high modulus fishing rod ever made, right? Uh, and then it goes on on GL2, GLX, I mean, GL3. It's so many, so many things. Y'all obviously had so much going on. How are you... Were you just tinkering that whole time or were you, were you after a specific set of qualities or like, 
what was driving so much innovation and such constant, cause it's so hard, right? It, it's one thing to be the first one there or to be on the top, but then to stay on top and to keep pushing that envelope and keep innovating. Like, was that just your own curiosity or was that a culture that you guys had built at Loomis or what do you attribute that to? Better rod, catch more fish. <laughs> hey, that's a good enough reason for me. You know, a lot of times I'm not too sure I was thinking about other people. I was just thinking about me. <laughs> I wanted to catch more fish. I knew I needed a better rod. Yeah. You know, when Fenwick was God in the industry, why they got the first graphite before we even knew about it was they was the innovator and the top people in, in the fishing rod. Right. Well, very shortly after that, when I first came out with the, uh, the IM6 and this type of stuff, Mm -hmm. Then these fiber manufacturers started looking at me, and I would say from that time on, any new resin or fiber, they sent it to me to have me test it to see if it was any good or whatever. Yeah. And usually, usually I got a year ahead of everybody else because they wanted me to test it and this type of stuff, and yeah. they didn't have the ability to do it. So right. I got the material before anybody else did. A lot of the stuff I got, you know, I just sent back to them because it wasn't any good. But, you know, the first, the first, second generation, IM6, the modulus came up and the strain rate came up. Yeah. You can't have only one of them. You have to have both of them. So when you give me a rod, you say, this is the best rod I ever fished. You're telling me that it's the right length, it's the right power, and it's the right action. What can I do to make it better, make it lighter? I'm so glad you brought that up because I remember, I mean, I remember this like we were sitting at the table uh, like it was yesterday, Gary. We went to lunch at a barbecue place in Nashville at one of these shows and we were talking about rods and you said something to me like the rod is in its absolute highest performance state as a naked blank. As soon as we put anything on it, we're robbing performance, but we can't fish it without these things on it. So anything you can do to reduce weight, especially at the tip, is material. Talk to me a little bit about that, because I feel like sometimes maybe as anglers or rod builders, we don't understand it. You, you can go ahead and tell them you remember good as I do. Right. <laughs> the, the analogy, as I remember the analogy you gave me, and I've told a lot of people this, and I say, Gary Loomis taught me this is like the analogy of a diving board, right? Cause that's a lever too. And if I take two steps and I dive and uh, you know, the board's going to bend a certain depth, it's going to throw me a certain height. It's going to take a certain moment in time to do that. And it's going to oscillate or whatever period of time before it dampens. Now imagine I put a 50 pound bag of concrete on it. It's going to flex more deeply, not throw me as high, take longer to do so. And it's going to be much less efficient in terms of it oscillates a lot longer. Now imagine I put the concrete at the tip versus the butt. That's kind of the example you gave me, and it was like yeah. it all got very clear in my head, and that's informed my rod building and component selection and design and stuff ever since. Um, and and I think maybe sometimes people people miss sight of that. You also said, "Hey, if you if you could have ten percent more durability or ten percent more performance, what would you want?" And I said, "I don't know, you know, I've broken a couple of rods." And you said, "If you want durability, don't buy my rods. That's not what I'm doing. I'm going for performance." Yeah, well, that's it. It's got to be strong enough. Strong enough. That's right. Yeah. But a lot of times there's that cutting edge in the design mm -hmm. and you say, this is really what I want. And it might be a little lighter than you think. Yeah. And but you, you make it, you send it out. Yeah. And if you have any breakage problems with it, you replace them. Mm -hmm. and, and then what you do is you go back and you beef it up just a little bit. Right. Because a lot of times we think we know how these people are going to use it, but we really don't know yeah. until it's out used a little bit. Right. And if we don't have any breakage, then we'll go ahead and lighten it up a We're little bit. We're leaving some performance on the table. Yeah. Increase that performance. Right. So yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people like that. Absolutely. That's fascinating. If you, if you had to, and this is like asking you which of your children you love more, but of all those materials you innovated and all the technologies that you brought, you have, like you mentioned the first time you picked up the Fenwick at that AFMA show in 65 or whatever year later, 70, whenever it was the, I remember the IM6, the Loomis IM6 that way. When I first picked that thing up and, and it, it was like a, I'm going to get it close. CB 742 or something. It was a seven foot kind of bass blank. And maybe we weren't calling it a CB yet at that point, but it was like, Oh, darling, where have you been my whole life? That was like 
that was a rod that just shook me. I couldn't believe it. And then the IMX fly rods were the same way. It was like, how can this rod possibly be this light and this narrow profile and this fast and strong? And it was just, it was just like a complete revolution. And, and we take that for granted now. Right. But do you have a favorite material or a favorite innovation and in all those dozens and dozens of things you brought to market? I mean, cause the whole industry is kind of standing on your shoulders now. Right. And they've learned from what you learned back in the day when you were learning it with your own two hands, uh, with, you know, uh, messing around with equipment and toying with, uh, compression weights on the rolling table and figuring out how do we roll at equal tip tension at the tip and the butt. And, you know, there's so many things we could get so technical about innovations that you sort of individually manifested in, in how everybody produces rods. Now, do you have a favorite of those things or. We'll go to material in a minute. Okay. But we'll go back to the machinery. You know, I worked for, for 10 years at Sherman's machine. We built edgers, barkers, resaws, head rigs for lumber mill. Okay. So we, we built a lot of machinery that had to do the job that it was built for. Right. A lot of people build machinery and it doesn't quite do what they wanted it to do, but ours had to do what we intended it to do. So I knew about that. Well, when I was five years at, at Lima Glass, I was using equipment that, that was there. That's mm-hmm. all it was. I mean, I kept it together and, and a lot of times had to put shear pins in when they put nails or wire in it <laughs> before, but I still had to use that. But right. I got the concept of what they're doing yeah. and this type of stuff. And I thought whoever came up with these designs for- yeah. was not a machinist, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. They, they, they kind of somewhat copied the first guy that did the first thing that wasn't right in the first place. Right. And yeah. kept, kept it going. Right. So the whole big secret is the denser, the material, when you roll it up, the stronger it's going to be. Yep. Because if you roll it up loose, you're going to have a lot of porosity in it, mm-hmm. little holes. Right. When you start to load it, those little holes are going to start to compress. When they compress, then they take the structure with it. Yep. So you've got to get that air out at the very beginning. Yep. So the tables that they had built before were kind of like a, they came down from the center pivot, and then they pivoted when they when they rolled them. Well, what happens is, if you have a multiple type taper mandrel, which all of the good blanks are, right, yeah, the butt's rolling faster than the tip is, and so it either have to put light enough pressure that instead of twisting the material on the blank, it slides across the 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 one end. Mm-hmm. Well. Really, truly, they can put about 35% pressure is all that they can put on it. Yeah. Well, my machine, when I designed it, I designed it, and when it came down, it picked up 250 pounds on each end, and then the mandrel rolled the table. Mm. Before, the table was in charge rolling the mandrel, yeah. and now my top is in control of following exactly the way that that mandrel goes. And I can put a lot more pressure on it than anybody right. else. Ever yep. Yeah, which increases that fiber density, material density, yep. Yeah, yeah. that was the push. And then cellophane machine, there was a lot of things we did. We learned from uh, a lot of the movie projectors where mm-hmm. as the cellophane or whatever the movie film got bigger, it changes the tension of the tape on it. Right. Well, same thing there. I want the same pressure from the tip to the button. Right. If you take two wraps on your finger and have 10 pounds hanging off of it, or two wraps on your wrist and having 10 pounds hanging on it, you really have more pressure on your finger because it's smaller. Right. If I put more pressure on my finger than I do on the back or the tip of the rod, I push the resin system when it goes into the oven up. I starve my tip. Mm-hmm. So I need the same pressure on the tip as I do the butt. So it compresses. Yep. So that, it, it gets complicated that, in a hurry. Yeah. 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 But it, uh, it really makes a difference. And so I figure that I can take somebody else's mandrel and somebody else's pattern, run it on my material, get 20% stronger or redesign it, get 20% less weight. Yeah. And you know what that does? Yeah. It's pretty impressive. 
Now on materials. Yes. Every new material I was just as excited about. Were you? As the last material we just got. Anything that improves the performance of the rod. Well, I'll tell you first about GLX. Okay. That was that was the hardest one to get the next one. The next at one time they was all for making something new and sending it to me and this type of stuff. Yeah. Well, I got down to IMX was the was the first one. IMX, see it was IM6, and then we came out with IMX. Mm-hmm. Well, IMX, we was pushing to get Hercules to make this new material for us, and they wouldn't you wouldn't make it, wouldn't make it Cortal company finally came in and made some for us. And so we called it IM6 because IM IM was the experimental fiber that Hercules was using. Okay. So the very first 504 pounds of it was was a fiber from England, mm-hmm. but then we got them to make it. Mm-hmm. But when it came into GLX, that was the tough one. I kept working with the resin company at Hercules and the fiber company, and you know they they all wanted to do it, right? But couldn't quite get the establishment to do it. So I got on a plane and I flew out to Wilmington, Delaware. Well, the stopover was Chicago. Okay. In the newspaper, it was Japan said that the United States was co-workers for Japan. So I took that with me. Okay. And I got there in 16th floor in Wilmington, Delaware, Hercules building. Yeah. I'm I'm from Woodland, Washington. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> I think I even had to buy a tie. I yeah. don't think I had a tie then. <laughs> anyway, so I so I get in there, and here comes the president. He said, well, what can I do for you, Mr. Lumen? And I said, well, first of all, let me tell you what we've been doing for you. So I told him about AS4 fiber, how much of that we had used in the last so many years, and the IM6, and and then the IMX, what happened there. Right. And now we want the next generation. And we know that uh, we think that you could make it if you would just give them the okay to do it. And before we go any further, I want to show you these newspapers that were co-workers for the Japanese. And I want to tell you that I wrote 10 letters to 10 fiber manufacturers throughout the world. I got answers back from eight of them, two of them from Japan that says they would like to work with me on this new fiber. And one from you was, no, you didn't want to work with me. Well, and he said, now exactly what do you want? And that's what I told him. And yeah. And he turned to his fiber manufacturer. He says, well, can we make this for him? I think we can. And the residence company said, yeah, we, we can we can do this. He says, well, what do we need? Well, he says, we need a, a uh, sample machine to make precursor, to make the precursor that we need to do to make the graphite. He says, it's just too expensive to start up the big precursor machine to make this amount. And he, and he said, well, what would this R&D precursor cost? About $250,000. And he said, well, that's a lot of money to invest in something that we don't know if there's a market for. I says, the reason that you don't think there's a market because you don't have the material. Yeah. I'm telling you that every time you've increased the modulus and the strain rate of a material, you had a market. Right. Yeah. You created and, a new and, market. Yeah. 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 And and he says, Well, how much would a precursor sample precursor cost? He says, Oh, about two hundred and fifty thousand. Well, he says, That's a lot of money to invest in it. I said, Well, what happens if I bought one and put it into your factory? Could you make it then? I had no chance in the life to buy a Two hundred fifty thousand dollars right. precursor. He right. said, "Well, uh, I don't think that they'd let us put somebody else's machine." Okay, we'll build it for you. So that's how I got what I had to do to get GLX. Sometimes you have to go right to the source and put them under the under the gun. But yeah, well, hey, whatever it takes. They were that those rods were so significantly lighter than oh, the predecessors. Yeah, they were un unreal we still uh, are i still have some yeah yeah no there they was a they was a jump so anyway we had a couple of materials after that that had different type of properties to it but this last one that we got is unbelievable it's the the strain rate on fibers up to that to this date 
they increased in the last 40 years. They increased from 450 to 750. Mm-hmm. This new one is a million one hundred thousand. This is a new North Fork composites material you're working with. Yeah, that's well. You you stole it, you, you stole my question. I was going to ask like, what are you guys working on? What should we what should we look forward to next? Because I know you never stop. But do we have a name for this material, or we're not talking about it yet? We got we got them out in a. Yeah, I was going to say, is it the air carbon? Yeah, because I've I, I have a couple of those blanks, and they are as much lighter than previous things as GLX was from like the the IMX yeah. and GL3, and they're tougher. Yeah, they really are tough. Uh, usually, when you break a blank, all these years you put it in the breaking machine and you pull it down. Seeing as it's designed a hundred percent every inch of that blank, when it breaks, it breaks in two or three pieces. Right. Because what happens is every piece is under ninety-nine percent load. When one fails, the catastrophic shock of it failing puts the others in close into breaking in two or three pieces. Okay, yeah. This, this is the first material that you pull it down. Our other ones would break at like 14. We pull this down to 18 or 19, and we hear a crack, and it drops down to 14. We pull it down again, it goes up to 15 or maybe 16. We hear another crack, and it'll drop back down to like 11. I mean, it is so doesn't ah. let go. doesn't go catastrophic. Just, wow. No. Oh, that's crazy, man. Yeah, it, it's the resin system is fantastic. I mean, they they finally have married the right fiber and the right resin together. Well, uh, I know they came out. I want to say they came out in maybe inshore first or bass first. They're, y'all have been kind of releasing them in different series of blanks, and I've been buying them as they come out. Um, and, and I, I'm a little behind on building, but those literally, those are on my bench. And if, if the way they feel in the shop is any indicator of how they're going to fish, I'm super, super excited. I also, this is, this, this is such a unique product too. I recently bought some of the linen fly rods that you guys oh, yeah. made. So talk to me about that. Like where, where did that come from? It's a super cool material. I mean, just, I, I'm, I'm interested in anything that's unique and different and certainly that is, but they have a wonderful feel to them. It's almost like a cross between fiberglass, all the best of fiberglass and all the best of graphite, but they have weight like graphite and they seem to be very durable. Yeah, they are. They are durable. It's uh, you know, we still have a few of these people that, fish bamboo uh-huh. and they just didn't like fiberglass and they really don't like graphite. Right. Right. You know, they're the, the old school and, sure. and there's a lot of them that are coming up that are still feeling the same. Sure. Well, this, this linen material gives them the feel of bamboo, but a, a lot more efficiency and uh lighter than bamboo yeah and they're like woody i mean i don't know how to i realize it's not a technical engineering term but when you cast them and handle one look at them they're kind of woody it's awesome yeah and and also they like that environmental aspect of the oh sure yeah that is that is definitely a highly sustainable material right yeah well so we you mentioned the catastrophic failures and and rod blanks breaking I, I don't know if people realize that as part of what you guys do you may have personally broken more rod blanks <laughs> than everybody else combined i don't know you you have broken a lot of blanks over the years you've also seen a lot of blanks come back uh for warranty and i and i tell people all the time like look if you broke if it, you have a broken rod blank 90 percent of the time it was in transport it was something that happened not fishing not on the water or it was high sticking or some sort of mistake that you should have made when you were angling an actual manufacturing defect is exceedingly rare right but uh and you test for those things they get flexed but but talk to me a little bit about that if you're someone who's had trouble breaking rods or you're scared of breaking rods you want to learn gary loomis's advice on how to not break rods as as a guy who's probably broken more than anybody on purpose though you were breaking them on person on purpose in the name of science so it was not by accident but yeah what what would you advise anglers or or, or how, how should what should we know about taking care of our rods that uh, we may be missing well you know it it's a lot of it is just plain common sense sure and and if a if a guy thinks of what he's doing and this type of stuff and he and he doesn't high stick 
when he's hung up mm -hmm. or he puts it over his shoulder and walks back out of the river and doesn't look at how his rod is bent. You know, usually he doesn't, now day and age, he doesn't, we usually don't have a lot of breakage. Yeah. And if we do, it's a guy that broke one and said, oh boy, I really screwed up here and um, I did this and I won't be doing that again. Yeah. So the fishermen are getting a lot smarter and yeah. we're not having the problems that we had before. And I think it's, I think it's saying something good to the fish about the fishermen. Yeah. Uh, before, you know, they graphite, Fleet's tall building and a single bound flies faster than a speeding bullet. Mm -hmm. And, and they just, you know, I, 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 I had one guy that he had a, I can't remember, right? McGill or something in okay. his boat. Yeah. Plus one of ours and the anchor was in there rolling back and forth and it broke ours and didn't break theirs. <laughs> and you couldn't believe, you know, when mine was twice as expensive, why mine broke and his didn't, but. Because it doesn't have all the stuff you don't need. It has just what you need for the performance, right? Well, hey, yeah. that's the one where you should say, you know what? You should try an ugly stick. It'll still not break even after you break the right and McGill. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Here's your money back. Have a nice day. I, yeah. I had one guy. We got the blank, and it was uh, a nine-foot blank, and it was in a cigar box. Oh, <laughs> that's a bad, that's a bad <laughs> sign. I, I'm not an engineer, but that's a bad sign. And he said, he said, if you can't repair it, sell me a new one. It saved my life. Well, I had to call him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, what happened? He says, well, I was fishing in the lake. Can't remember where it was at. And he says, I'm fly fishing in my float tube. And all of a sudden, I got this feeling I'd better turn around. I took around. And here comes this water moccasin. Oh, Lord. He wants to get up on, the, on my float tube. So for a while, I'd just take the tip of that rod and I'd flick that snake back and that snake would turn around and come right back. I'd mm -hmm. flip him and say, pretty soon, he said, I got so tired, I couldn't flip him anymore. So I started beating him. <laughs> I, be I beat on him until I broke the front half of the rod. I turned around, grabbed the back half of the rod, beat him with the goddamn reel <laughs> until I broke it, finally killed the damn snake. And... Uh, he said, uh, like I said, uh, if you can't fix it, sell me a new one. Yeah, well, look, he, he could be forgiven. What do we what do we like for snake repellent? A seven weight, eight weight? What do you what was Gary Loomis's recommendation oh, for a I snake charmer? At least an eight weight. At least an yeah. eight weight? Okay. Yeah. All right, I save a new one free. Yeah. Said, this story I'll be using the rest of my life and it's worth it. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. You've also, one of the things I've really liked seeing, in addition to, and I know it's called North Fork Composites and Edge Rods, and certainly you guys are doing, obviously, cutting edge, advanced stuff with the carbon air, but you also have released some some blanks recently. Obviously, you've got the Econoglass fly blanks, and you've got the all-purpose fast glass blanks. And uh, I, I bought some of those, uh, the seven-foot all-purpose fast glass blanks, and man, I love that stuff. So, so that's interesting. You're still kind of playing around with these other materials too. Yeah, yeah. Send me something new, and I'll play with it. All right. <laughs> you know, no, we uh, we have a lot of people that really like them. Yeah. They also come in what, three different colors. Oh yeah, a bunch of colors, uh, and they're yeah. pretty. Yeah, that's um. It's interesting when when you guys release those. You said. I often think of fiberglass with fly rods, but I don't typically think of fiberglass for conventional rods, right? But I like to fish a lot of topwaters and these different kind of things. And I think the quote that they had when they released those blanks from you was that if I had had glass like this back in the day, I might have never gone after graphite, right? Um, and they're they're really they're sweet, sweet rods and and shockingly light. I mean, they're probably not just a whole lot different uh, than you know some of the IM six and you know that era carbon fibers are they're wonderful rods yeah it's a it's a it's a higher modulus fiberglass mm -hmm. number one and it's set up as roving not woven material mm. it's a totally different do you remember a company harnell oh man back in the day they made like surf rods i think yeah yeah they made a lot of uh, salt water rods okay yeah they made a few steel head rods and this type of stuff mm -hmm. but uh but it was a it was also a roving material. It was the only company that I know of that made it. 
for a short period of time, and then they uh, Harrington Richards, I think, bought them out or something, mm. and they changed the materials over. But it's it's a it's a roving where the material is kind of like lays over itself, yeah, which creates the hoop strength, mm. but it puts a lot more of the fibers. Woven material, you know, your bi-directional is hoop right. strength. Right. And if you can get that hoop strength out of the new resins and the roving material, you can put all your fibers longitudinally. And, and get all that performance. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, so obviously, super exciting things going on all the way from fiberglass to linen to the new carbon air. What, what, uh, you guys are also doing a lot of interesting stuff with uh, grips, with the Black Widow grips and various forms of carbon fiber, foam core carbon fiber grips and things like that? You know, I've, I have worked on the handles mm -hmm. probably as long as I've worked on the blanks. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, you know, we're close here to uh, the, the big company in Beaverton, shoe company. Nike. Oh yeah, yeah. That I, little company in Beaverton. Yeah, we've heard yeah, of that. Yeah, company in Beaverton. <laughs> I worked with them and a lot of other companies on trying to find a material to replace cork. Ah, interesting. Yeah. There was two reasons: is cork was getting really expensive, even clear back in the seventies. Right. Uh, more expensive and harder to get. Yeah. And even in those days, I realized. Cork was an insulator. Yeah, a dampening material, right? Yeah. Sensitivity. Yep. And so I was working on that. Well, I could get stuff, you know, they had the uh, hypalon and they had all these other type of materials and mm -hmm. they were just like a total sensitive deadener. You know, they yeah. just EVA and all of those. Right. And but I just thought there was something something new, something better. And it really got to the point in time that it, Everything I always come up graphite, but how the heck do you build a graphite right. handle? <laughs> right. So we kept working on it until we got this weave pattern and this type of stuff. And we could actually take and build our handle. The first one was uh, Black Widow handles. I was going to say Black Widow handles, yeah. We actually had to build that handle ourselves. Right. We had to buy the right foam to yeah. put in the inside. We tried lots of different type of foams, but I wanted a foam that transmitted sensitivity and this type of stuff. We could only buy it in a sheet form. Yeah. So we bought it in a sheet form, cut it into a square, turned it. Turned it to a cylinder. And 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 then I mean it was it was a long process. Still got a process up in my garage at home. Yeah. And and then we would roll it you know, roll it up and, and build the handle that way. Yeah. But we really increased that sensitivity yeah. and more moreover everything, which I like if you've got one of our handles, grab the handle in one area, hold it for about 10 seconds and just feel the temperature. Go down and grab the handle again and feel the temperature. It'll be the same temperature it was up above. Now go back where you had grabbed it the first time and grab it. And you'll say, holy Toledo, it's warm. It takes about five seconds to turn that handle from the temperature it is to the temperature of your hand. So if you're fishing on a cold day. Makes a big you difference. you have a handle that's wet, it'll be wet all day and cold all day. Yep. But that graphite handle will turn to the temperature of your hand yep. in no time at all. That, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. You guys have yeah. invested a significant amount of having taken the tour up there. There's a lot of tooling and a lot of tech and a lot of everything else that goes into making those grips. And, and also the the woven uh, style of grips, which you also make that are excellent and that can be fit to just about any real seat with a very tight fit and finish, which is also not an easy thing to do. No, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of people have copied them, but they, the one main thing that they don't have is the type of material that we have inside of our handle right and right. Uh, very uniform very stiff very light no bubbles yeah it's a uh, good material no we're we're running all different type of tests on all different type of things all the time it's fascinating right what, what i do <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely well it's working 
and uh, very exciting products. And just, I can't wait to see the direction you guys continue to go in. Aaron Lowe, my director of sales, and I had the pleasure of coming up there and getting the tour from Alex and Ivan and Kim. And uh, man, it's an impressive operation. And uh, I, I'm super excited to see what you come up with next. And uh, can we lobby? Can we lobby for which carbon air blanks we want next? Would would there ever be, would there ever be a carbon air fly? Ah, uh, we 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 may or we may just go to our T eleven hundred G. This is the jump, crazy. Okay, you're jump a generation already, man. Yeah. I just I just barely got my hands on carbon air, and you're gonna you're gonna go to the next one. That's awesome. Well, I Gary, it is such a pleasure to have you on, and and I I thought I knew a lot of these stories. I thought I knew a lot of these things. I just learned a lot today. You are truly uh, the rod father and, and and one of the pillars of the industry, and. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I want to give you an open standing invitation. Your crew was kind enough to take us on your home waters, the North Fork of the uh, of Lewis. the the Lewis. And man, we had a couple of great days. Uh, it's a beautiful fishery. I can see why you love it and why you've done so much work for conservation in that area and to protect it. But I want to extend you the open invitation. Anytime you get down to the Gulf coast and want to go fishing, say when I'd love to take you. I, I appreciate it. And uh, like I says, Alex has heard so many of these stories. He can repeat them. And he's, he's the next generation of this company that's going to take it over the top and, and beyond. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I can't wait. Uh, I hope to be right there with him. So thank you so much for coming on today. This has been outstanding and uh, I, it, it's a pleasure and an honor and I really appreciate you. We're going to post up a bunch of links, uh, but NorthForkComposites.com, uh, check out the entire product line. Um, you got the Delta series, X-ray series. You've got all these iconoglass and all purpose fast glass. I don't know whether you can get the linen blanks anymore. You, you kind of got to pounce on those special runs when they pop up. But you, if you look close, you might be able to get some more of those. And, of course, be looking for the Carbon Air, which is an outstanding product. And, uh, and Gary, I look forward to seeing you again. We, will we see you at ICAST next year? Maybe. I think so. Thanks, Bill, for, for doing this. We really appreciate it. And uh, anytime that you can get up this way, you're welcome. And. We'll probably go catch another fish. Let's go. I believe you. I believe you. You got that river. You guys have that river wired, man. There's oh, no do. doubt. Oh, I know. Now I understand. When I understand you fished every day for 120 <laughs> days and only missed three days, no wonder you know the river so well. Yeah, I could probably well, figure I, out a river if I got to fish that much. I'm jealous, man. I, I, I live right on the North Fork. <laughs> so, uh, we, you know, we floated past the, the property and it's gorgeous. Uh, love it. Absolutely love it. Well, hey, uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, we appreciate you joining. And, and please remember to like and subscribe and download wherever you get your podcast content. I'm Bill Faulkner. We'll see you next time. <laughs>